Most British Columbians are feeling the financial impact of the coronavirus. And according to this Insight West survey, 69% of us have seen our RSP or savings negatively impact. 40% of business owners have seen the finances of their businesses negatively affected. 54% of all British Columbians say they've been negatively infected, affect, impacted rather by COVID-19, including 11% who said it's been a major negative impact. A couple more numbers for you, then we'll talk to Jennifer. 41% said the crisis has impacted their ability to pay rent. 29% said their ability to pay their mortgage has been affected. 31% say the crisis has hampered their ability to cover household expenses. 13% said they're going into debt to cover their expenses in the short term. 6% say they're likely to declare personal bankruptcy. None of these numbers are comforting, even slightly. And yet our next guest hears the stories behind these numbers every day. She is Jennifer McCracken. She is a senior manager and licensed insolvency trustee with BDO First Call Debt Solutions and a good friend of this program. Good morning, Jennifer. Welcome back. Good morning, Sterling. It's good to have you back with us. You saw that Insights West survey that came out just a couple of days ago. And again, you've seen the stories that none of these numbers were probably even slightly surprising to you. No, they're not. And it's it's most unfortunate uh, to hear to hear that that survey, I think, really summarizes the situation for individuals and a number of aspects of their lives, particularly their financial life. Um, Canadians, we know, are reporting higher numbers of stress, and, and particularly around their finances. Uh, we know that the debt stress um, and, and their worry about financial hardship and their impact that this is having on their future income um, is really something that is, is bringing quite a bit of concern for Canadians. We also saw recently with Stats Can publishing uh, the unemployment numbers, so we have the numbers, the national numbers, mm. we're looking at 13%, and we also have the numbers for BC, which are showing our employment rate is going up. So that does not help individuals feel comfortable about paying down their debt or about through their future financial uh, position in life. You know, well, I suppose the thing that is is concerning to some, uh, Jennifer, because we are, by and large, an honorable group, and Canadians, by and large, are good for their debts. And some of us bend over backwards to be responsible and, and honor our debts and our financial obligations. But, Jennifer, it's a little concerning when you see how many people in that survey are reaching into their retirement funds and their RRSPs to pay the Blinken Hydro bill and the groceries because there's no other cash flow source. That is actually a very concerning part of the survey because uh, RSPs are really meant to be, you should really think of those more like pensions, right? It's meant to be a long-term savings plan. We know that the value of the investments is down, so individuals that have been working hard and putting in money to their plans for year after year, uh, we're seeing that the value of those have gone down. And then when we are taking money out of those plans, it becomes a taxable source of income. Right. And really, we encourage individuals to um, keep those uh, plans in place. Please, if at all possible, do not withdraw money at this time from something like an RSP. Um, that survey hinted at individuals as well that measured, it was measuring specifically bankruptcy. Other, you know, there are other options available, but um, 6% found that they are considering doing an insolvency filing. Yeah, yeah. So 
in an insolvency scenario, an RSP, by and large, is a protected asset. There's a clawback of only 12 months worth of contributions. So uh, for individuals that aren't have not made contributions in a 12-month period prior to now, that would be an exempt asset. So we're really encouraging folks that if, if one of the reasons to take money out of that plan is to cover debt payments, you really got to find out what your options are now instead of, you know, that could be an asset that you could maintain and keep as opposed to losing it as part of this COVID crisis. Exactly. So uh, let's assume for the moment that uh, we're on that, we're at that point in our lives and we're recognizing that, you know, I've got the, I'm up against it here. These debts have to be paid. There's no other source of income right now. Uh, for whatever reason, I don't qualify for any of those uh, benefit programs being offered by any level of government. So I have to fall back on my own financial capabilities to honor my obligations. Oops, all I've got left is my RRSP and my retirement plan. Short of that, Jennifer, what other remedies do I have to address these outstanding debts? Well, you know what's interesting about this situation, uh, Sterling, is that a lot of folks are you're, you're developing a bit of a short-term plan. So the short-term, if we say to the end of this year, you know, you're right. People are assessing what uh, available funds are there through all the benefits, through the federal programs and the provincial programs. Right. What do I have access to? So people are doing that research. There may be some people that had um, an emergency fund, although recently one of the articles from the Bank of Canada, the governor reported that they estimate that there's a lot, a lot of Canadians don't have anything beyond, say, a two-month uh, chunk of cash to cover their expenses. So we're right. not talking about a, an emergency fund that's going to keep them to the end of the year. So that, that is very short-term, right? That's maybe a month or two worth mm-hmm. of expenses. And then one thing that we're talking about is to individuals that are in this situation is obviously look at your budget, but you know we, there's been an extension to the tax deadline. If you have a tax refund sitting on your tax account, get your return filed. That could be enough money to cover up one month of living expenses. So you've, you've got to look to to all of these things in your financial life, and, and obviously we're encouraging the obvious step of trimming back expenses, finding out if you're eligible for deferrals either of interest or of principal. That's something that we're encouraging everyone to do. So hit on your question, though, concerning the long-term impact, mm-hmm. you know, if, if, you, if an individual is going to sit down and say, realistically, when am I going to be debt-free and how am I going to pay this debt back, that's where the insolvency filing is really coming into play, because a lot of individuals are realizing at this point that the new normal, when our economy reopens, there may not be as many jobs, or there's going to be a bottleneck of applications, and so the long-term prospect of paying off debt has changed. Right, you and I talk about debt being caused by life events. Right, this is one of the most significant life events anyone's going to have. Um, this is unprecedented for a lot of Canadians. So, I think that that in of itself is indicating that there's going to be probably record number of insolvency filings. We're not seeing the numbers now, but we do predict that we're going to be seeing that. So, I think longer term, yes, individuals are going to have to seriously consider whether or not a bankruptcy or proposal is going to be the best approach for them to get out of debt. But, you know, um, and we'll talk about that. I need to take a break. We'll talk about the difference, and it's a huge difference between a bankruptcy filing and a consumer proposal, the other debt uh, resolution remedy. But just before the break, a very important point that you've just made, Jennifer McCracken, and that's about the tax. Because the tax filing deadline has been extended until the end of August this year, many people 
uh, who may, in fact, have a rebate pending, haven't bothered to file yet because they didn't have to. It's not it's not the old April 30th deadline this year. <laughs> so a lot of us just parked it and said, you know, we'll get, I'll get to it later. But if indeed you do have a tax rebate, you sit down, you do your taxes, and you've got a, a couple of thousand bucks coming back to you, why wouldn't you get that thing in the mail and or get it off e-file it to Ottawa and get that money in your account? Oh, precisely. You know, the deadline, Sterling, really only benefits people who owe money to the CRA. So if you have a refund on that account, get that your return filed. For individuals on pensions, it helps them requalify for the pension programs. And we know uh, just recently there was an announcement for seniors that there's going to be a top-up for individuals that are uh, receiving pension amounts. It's automatically put on a one-pension check. It's a one-time top-up. Right. So there's all these reasons indicate it's very prudent. Get that return filed. Get your refund. You're going to qualify for other programs that are income-based and um, that will help bridge the gap right now. It's not the full solution, but it's a short-term measure to bridge the gap when you're tight at this time. Absolutely, and that's what we're all struggling with right now, just getting through the short-term to the other side when things start to open up again and we can get out there and make a buck. Jennifer McCracken joining us from BDO First Call Debt Solutions. Ms. McCracken is a senior manager and a licensed insolvency trustee. And Jennifer, when people find themselves spiraling out of control, and it's it's, it's more and more of us with limited and reduced resource availabilities, even job prospects are are starting to really freak out, to be pointed, put it quite bluntly. Um, do you have to be so messed up financially that, that when you go to someone like an insolvency trustee, I'm thinking a lot of people see you as the very, very end of the line last resort. And I, I'm thinking, Jennifer, maybe you would, you would like us to, to reconsider that and, and talk to a professional like yourself well ahead of the very last step available to you. Well, I couldn't agree with you, your statement more in the sense that individuals really need to find out what their options are, yeah. and there are things you can do um, in it, prior to considering a filing that will help you maintain some economic stability. So, of course, we will walk you through what the options are, and we know there's a lot of resources out there right now for Canadians to help them. So I do encourage individuals to reach out and ask questions and find out what their options are, and we can give information about you know what type of conversations can you have with your lender. Does it make sense? for me to defer my mortgage right now. What's the long-term impact to that? Um, How much do I owe right now on lines of credit and unsecured debt? What are those creditors' rights? I mean, a lot of people are saying collection activity has slowed down, that loans aren't really in collection. It's a little bit quiet right now. We're also seeing insolvency filings actually have gone down, which seems counterintuitive right now, but it it is really more seen as a calm before the storm. Right. So if you're getting some relief right now from your creditors, you're not having to make those payments, you have some deferrals in place, educate yourself now. You know, information is power. Educate yourself on what your options are. You know, the the market is, the job market is questionable in terms of what does it look like when the economy reopens and how many jobs are really still there? Is my job still there when we get back at it? We don't really know. And also, the lending environment. So, what lenders were looking at previously for things like consolidations, loan consolidations. You know, what what rates are they lending at? Are they needing security? I mean, we also... We don't really know what, how 
viable that option is going to be to get out there and get some type of consolidation loan. So, you know, if you, you should educate yourself now and find out what you can do. And then longer term, if, if an insolvency filing really does become uh, the best option for you and your family, at least you've done that research now and you can start sort of bracing yourself and preparing yourself for what might be the inevitable. For And, and also don't feel alone, right? Uh, there's going to be millions of Canadians that are going to need access to something like a bankruptcy or proposal to overcome the impact of this pandemic. No kidding. And and uh, just in terms of, of the loan process, uh, if you're, is it wrong to uh, assume that because some lenders have granted uh, a, a period of reprieve to say mortgage holders or other car loan people or whatever, is it wrong to assume that because Bank X, well, that's where I bank, they're giving everybody a break from their mortgage. So I don't even need to bother to call them to touch base and say, thanks, they're just giving me a break. That's not how it works, really, is it? No, and and we and I've been on your show before, and I know you and I have talked about the fact that communication is so key on your accounts. And so the, the mortgage requests are, there's been a substantial number in Canada. So there were some figures published that um, as of sort of beginning of May, we saw about 722,000 requests we on did, mortgage yeah. deferrals. And, uh, you know, that's only for six months, right? So the, the, the reality is going to set in that that principal and interest and the interest on the principal and interest, you know, you, you may be extending your amortization schedule or you'll have to catch it up. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, that is going to cost you more when you do a deferral. And then also we're seeing it with the credit card companies where I think we're really going to see these deferrals in place sort of during COVID. And then once all the economies reopen, that's where banks will, will start taking stock. And as you say, there's no guarantee that a, a lender is just going to work with you. One, th- one thing I've actually been hearing, and I think you'd find this interesting, is that real estate deals that have not closed as of yet, lenders are going back now, even during this crisis, to confirm the status of employment and needing proof of employment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, th- th- let's keep in mind, a lender is still a lender. And it's, you know, they're shareholders for some companies. You know, so like, you've got, they have got to manage also their risk. And, and I think one of the things the Bank of Canada was talking about recently, um, and one of the articles I read was showing that um, they're predicting levels of mortgage arrears actually to increase beyond the numbers that we saw in the 2009 financial crisis. So I, I don't, you know, lenders are bracing themselves right now. So it's not as though they're going to be sort of just rubber stamping uh, approvals on, on uh, consolidation loans. Even if there's security, they're going to question and gonna really want to look at what is the risk if even if we can get a mortgage or get, get register against a property, yeah. that may not be enough. Yeah, Jennifer, only about 90 seconds. It's unfair of me to give you such a short period of time, but <laughs> In that limited period of time, try, if you can, to discuss the difference between a consumer proposal and an actual bankruptcy. Well, a consumer proposal really is a settlement with the creditors. The contribution that an individual will make in the proposal um, will be higher than what they would otherwise pay in a bankruptcy. So it's a, a payment plan, in essence, for over 60, for about 60 months, it's interest-free, and at the end of it, they have retired and discharged the debt. The bankruptcy, I always say, is the shortest and quickest approach to get out of debt. It's kind of like ripping off a Band-Aid. Mm. Um, you, you'll, you're in it for nine months, generally. Sometimes it's longer if you've had prior filings. 
And um, it is a process where you, you just contribute the basic amount that's required to eliminate your debt. So in essence, it's, that's, the, that's the biggest sort of difference between the two. The bankruptcy shorter and tends to be less costly than the settlement plan. So we, we walk people through that process. When and, and anybody who's thinking about this, they should reach out to a licensed insolvency trustee and really get a sense of what the landscape of any option is based on their unique situation. How expensive are you and your colleagues at BDO First Call to have that all-important? Where, where am I staying? Standing here, I'm, I'm starting to lose my sense of, of belonging, and I'm starting to feel like I'm going to go underwater. I need to sit down with a pro. How expensive are you? Well, one thing we always want to tell people is getting information about your debts and what your options are is free. You can always call BDO. You can always call Licensed Insolvency Trustee, and we will tell you what your options are. We can do it over the Obviously, we're doing it over the phone of right course, now. Yeah. You don't have to pay for advice to find out what you can do right now. So please, if any listener is struggling, reach out and you can get answers to your questions. Excellent. And the, the toll-free line from anywhere in Canada is one eight five five bdo debt and that'll get you through eventually to Jennifer McCracken right here in Vancouver. Always a pleasure, Jennifer. Thanks for getting up early to do this very important conversation. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me. one eight five five bdo debt is one remedy as close as your phone. It's uh, going to be a stay-at-home kind of summer. Two, uh, two hours from now, Claire Newell will join us with her travel segment. And for the past several weeks, Claire has been doing excellent work on the future of travel because this pandemic has proven to be, for the entire planet, a game-changer. And so what's that going to mean to tourism and travel? Well, for the short term, it's going to mean nobody's going very far from home. So for those of us fortunate enough to live in British Columbia, that means... It's likely to be the 2020 summer of the staycation. So what to do? Where to go? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's such a big place. Marsha Walden is with us this morning. Ms. Walden is the CEO of Destination BC. Marsha, good morning, and thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sterling. So happy to be here. It's great to have you with us. I've lived in British Columbia for a very long time, Marcia. It's a huge place. There's a lot of this province I have yet to see, and I get the feeling I'm maybe seeing a little bit more of it than I'd planned in the summer of 2020. Are you hearing that from a lot of people? Oh, absolutely. And uh, we're hoping that that will be true. Uh, if we can keep a lid on um, any out- further outbreaks of uh, of this uh, COVID-19, we will have the opportunity to explore our own province. And as you said, there's so many incredible things to do in British Columbia that we're extremely fortunate to be um, having a staycation here. Tell us a little bit about Destination BC, Marcia, because for for doing my homework for this particular interview, I found out, for example, that that wonderful tagline that my old friend Ched Miller did in the 80s, super natural British Columbia. I thought that brand belonged to Tourism BC, but no, it's yours. So tell us more about Destination <laughs> BC. Well, it's, and you said that very well, Sterling. Um, the uh, the tagline "Supernatural British Columbia" has been with us for over thirty years now, as you referenced, and uh, it was initially developed um, uh, about the time of Expo, if I understand mm-hmm. it. And, and at that time, the Crown Corporation responsible for marketing British Columbia to the world was called Tourism BC. Okay. And then for a period of time, um, just prior to the Olympics, government felt it was best to manage the tourism portfolio from inside government. And uh, so Tourism BC was um, uh, collapsed and then later reinvented as a crown 
about three and a half, four years later as Destination BC. So it's been through a few iterations, but um, it's uh, that tagline has endured and it's uh, one that I think continues to capture our province beautifully. Well, it certainly brought millions of visitors uh, since we started uh, using that tagline and the gorgeous beauty shots that accompany it. Uh, we pe- brought people in literally from every corner of the planet on the basis of those ads alone, haven't we? You're quite right, and uh, British Columbia is very, very fortunate to have had um, an incredible run with tourism over the last decade or so. We've been uh, really growing at um, an enormous rate, uh, almost twice the the rate of the economy as a whole, mm-hmm. um, between you know five, six, seven percent every year for the last decade, and um, it was looking like it would continue for some time yet. Um, everywhere in our country, uh, travelers around the world want to see some of the natural beauty that uh, is um, part of Canada, and British Columbia has that in spades. So it, it's just devastating to see an industry that was on such a growth line to suddenly be brought to its knees as it has been by this terrible crisis. So what are you doing at Destination BC, Marcia? I know that you are keenly aware of, of the impact of COVID-19 on our tourism sector. It is harsh, to, and, and, that, and that's putting it mildly. So is there a plan? Obviously, that's your, part of your mandate is to respond to your members and and the business in the province and and repackage where necessary so what are you doing to 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 assist yes well absolutely that is our mandate and um so we have a plan that we've uh, more or less broken into three phases sterling it's uh we headline it with as response recovery and resilience and um, our first job in the response phase which has just come to an end more or less Uh, was to ensure that our industry had the right information about um, uh, what the health authorities were recommending we do, Mm -hmm. making sure that we had all the information available to our businesses about what programs and funding relief they could apply for, and also engaging our industry in helping to be part of the solution to make sure that we were not encouraging travel at a time when um, uh, the health authorities were saying, please don't travel. So we wanted to use our collective communications resources as an industry, which are substantial, uh, to really ask people to explore BC later. And uh, so over the course of several weeks, we all came together around um, around that hashtag and that banner line and uh, reached uh, over 11 million uh, people through that effort. So that was that's that's the opening phase, which yeah. t- times out perfectly with phase two for Restart BC, Marsha, which begins right. on Tuesday. So what is the second phase of your program? Well, the second phase of our program, which we headline uh, recovery, or it is really very much in lockstep with what our health authorities are telling us. So as an organization and as an industry, we've had to be very nimble because we're following the guidance of what our politicians and our health authorities are advising is, sure. is the right thing to do. So the, re- the recovery phase for us is really about um, gradually uh, reopening our tourism industry on the basis of what the health authorities are, are giving guidance around. So right now we've moved from Explore BC Later to really encouraging people to explore BC Local because that's 
um, sort of that first little expansion of our uh, social bubble and our travel bubble is very much on a local basis. Right. And we've heard um, uh, Dr. Henry say, you know, fewer faces and bigger spaces. So we're very much encouraging people to get outdoors. Uh, to um, take advantage of the fact that our parks are now open for day use, doing things like kayaking and things that are close to home, supporting businesses where they are open, getting a takeout picnic to have in the park with your best friend, those sorts of things that are just really about reopening the economy slowly and then preparing ourselves for um, the, the summer all going well. Um, to to really then start doing the things that uh, will be permissible, um, dining in restaurants again, going camping, uh, visiting our museums and art galleries, uh, really taking advantage of all the outdoor sports and recreation that uh, we normally would love in the summer months. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a very gradual plan, and we've really focused all of our international dollars on helping to stimulate the local domestic economy and uh so that's our job for the next uh, foreseeable future. Sure. So uh, uh, just a quick question on that uh, phase two, as we encourage people, however, slowly to emerge from from our caves and, and start to reintegrate with our fellow humans in the great outdoors, preferably. But uh, BC Ferries during the winter season has a deal, Marsha, where they offer to BC residents only a ferry boat ride from Horseshoe Bay or Tawasson uh, over to uh, the island, and then you take your car across to the far side and you go to Euclid or Tofino and you stay at some really cool place on the water and the cost of it all, including your ferry boat ride and a couple of nights accommodation at a swell place on the water is actually very reasonable. It's kind of a hometown discount program that BC Ferries does in the off season. Given that most of this summer is going to feel like the off season for our tourism industry, regrettably, uh, might there be some hometown discount consideration from operators in the business? Well, as you well know, all of our tourism businesses, uh, as well as some of the major corporations like BC Ferries, are eager to have people re-embrace travel mm-hmm. uh, to the extent that it will be permitted. Right. And, um, and I think absolutely you're going to see some amazing things to see and do and a lot of promotion of probably places that you never imagined uh, even existed in the province because there will be a lot of marketing activity uh, to showcase what we have here uh, locally as opposed to normally trying to draw travelers in from international markets. So uh, we we really do have a great opportunity, I think, to, um, uh, to help British Columbians know their province better and to give them an amazing summer experience that they probably never realized they could have here at home. So, so much in our own backyard, Marsha. It is quite amazing, actually, when you sit down and start thinking about it. Just just a, a kilometer north of Lynn Valley is the outback, and Lord only knows who lives there, and not many humans and a whole lot of creatures, and that's not even <laughs> far. I mean, that's, that's, that's a 10-minute drive, for crying out loud. Our guest is the CEO of Destination BC. A pleasure to have Marsha Walden with us on the program this morning. 
Marcia, just a, just a ballpark figure. It doesn't have to be too accurate. But how much money does tourism represent to the B.C. economy on an annual basis? Well, uh, 2018 are the most recent stats that we have from B.C. Stats and Stats Canada. And uh, tells us our industry in at that time was worth um, almost $21 billion to our province alone. Uh, and that had represented uh, an almost 5% increase over 2017. And in the subsequent years, we know we've been growing at uh, just about 5% a year. So we know it's significantly more than that. I think many of your listeners, Sterling, would be surprised to learn that um, in terms of gross domestic product, tourism is the largest of our natural resource industries. And so it's contributing to communities all over our province, not just here in the Lower Mainland. Sure, but, yeah. Um, you know, up and down the coast and in the Northeast, it's it's really everywhere. So what percentage of that enormous figure that you just cited of $21-plus plus billion what percentage of that would the tourism industry hope that we British Columbians ourselves can fill over the mm-hmm. summer? Well, um, one of the things we know is that uh, international visitors bring about $7 billion into our economy every year through tourism, and the rest is domestic. Okay. Uh, But equally, British Columbians spend almost $7 billion in other places in the world. So if we can get British Columbians to spend their $7 billion here at home, it will really go a long way to helping our tourism economy recover. We know that that's maybe not likely, given that people tend to spend a little more when they go away on vacation than when they stay home on vacation. But it's certainly a promising number to put our uh, heads around and and hope for and uh, try to cultivate uh, through marketing programs. Well, it's Sunday morning, Marcia. Phase two of Restart BC kicks in in two days, literally on Tuesday. Phase three, according to Dr. Henry and Premier Horgan, is set to kick in sometime, we hope, all things being equal, in July. That's the phase that will see hotels and resorts opening, again, likely on a limited basis, similar to what they're requesting of of cafes and restaurants and so on. How much of a difference maker is that going to be? Well, first of all, we're hopeful, actually, phase three will kick in as early as June, Sterling. Oh, good. Okay. Um, So if if things remain equal, as you said, and we don't have any more outbreaks, we will start to see significantly more start to open in June, again, in a very cautious manner. Uh, and, you know, at that point, we will start to see hotels and resorts open, the camping will open, um, and other parts of our industry like film and whatnot, not our industry, but generally uh, the economy will start to open. But the one thing that um, uh, I don't want our your listeners to lose is that all of this has to be very sensitive to the feelings that communities have and whether or not they feel ready to host visitors. I'm sure you've seen some of the news excuse me, the news clippings that um, talk about uh, local residents saying, please don't come and visit us yet. We're not quite ready. Um, and that's, and that's Marcia, that's in the news this weekend again, in, and not only just in British Columbia, it's, it's happening, happening in small, uh, particularly recreational-oriented uh, communities right across Canada, where the locals with very limited access to health care uh, are, are quite nervous about large groups of, of the city folk heading their way. 
Right. So we really have to be, again, in lockstep with local mayors and councils as we promote different parts of the province to understand whether or not they feel ready to host visitors, even if they're British Columbian visitors. Yeah. Um, and so we just need to be all be sensitive not to get ahead of ourselves. And we've asked our partners in the in the community destination marketing organizations like Tourism Tofino and Kamloops and Fernie and all over the province to just be really clear on their websites, whether or not they're they're ready to, to open and their businesses are ready to, to host. And uh, so it's going to be um, tiptoeing into tourism, I think, in the next uh, in the next month or so, just as we figure this out. Yeah. Destination BC overseas teams on keeping BC top of mind is a is a, a, a thing on your website, which, by the way, friends, is destinationbc.ca. It's a great website to find out what's going on behind the scenes in terms of making British Columbia even more attractive to British Columbians. You do have people. You've got an update from Germany, the UK, Australia. Australia, China, clearly indicative of where that $7 billion in foreign investment in BC tourism comes from. So are, is some of the marketing money that you would typically spell, spend in England or Germany or Australia or China being reconfigured or redirected to uh, Canadian audiences in other parts of Canada to encourage them to come to BC instead of uh, foreign visitors? Absolutely. We've uh, repatriated, if you will, um, as much of our overseas budget as we can to really stimulate the domestic economy. We think this year will be all about British Columbians, Albertans and the rest of Canada coming to visit us here in various um, you know, stepped phases. But we do need to keep the lights on overseas, if you will. Oh, sure. Um, we, we have incredibly valuable relationships with tour operators and what we call the travel trade who spend all their time and energy promoting uh, British Columbia on our behalf and getting their local residents to book book trips. So our work with them has really been to make do a lot of training to make sure that, that we take this opportunity to make them even more familiar with the product that we have here for the future uh, and to maintain really good relationships with them because we will need them again and we want to support our good partners in all over the world. Uh, Marsha, one of the one of the most popular places in the world to organize and attend a convention of any description happens to be Vancouver, British Columbia. Our people and in and Vancouver tourism and, and other related uh, boards and are telling us that that's that's an enormous uh, loss of business to the Metro Vancouver economy. Uh, and I suppose in lockstep with everything else, that business is just on hold until things really loosen up. Is that simply the case? Currently it is. It's a very difficult situation. And as you referenced, you know, when um, international meetings are held in Vancouver, uh, most organizers feel uh, that the attendance is much better when they host here. Absolutely. It's a place everybody wants to come, even if it's for business meetings. So um, I know that 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 uh, segment of, of travel is very eager to get back on its feet. And I know they're working with Dr. Henry to figure out what under what conditions might meetings and conventions be able to uh, to return more quickly than uh, we're currently forecasting. So there's a ton of energy and different scenarios and operating protocols being considered uh, to really figure out what, what makes the best sense in terms of timing there. Because right now, it's looking like it's quite a ways off, and, and um, it's a huge part of our economy and 
has many side spin-off benefits too um, in drawing business and um, and other industries to even want to relocate to to British Columbia. Only a couple of seconds left, and we must include HelloBC.com because this is all about uh, planning that BC staycation for the summer. It's your website, one of many, and uh, this is a, this is a local vacation planner. While adventures in BC beckon, it's not time to travel outside our province. One of the many messages. HelloBC.com is up and running for everyone in the province, right? It sure is, and it is chock full of incredible ideas for planning how you could spend your summer somewhere in British Columbia, and um, and it references uh, every imaginable kind of activity and spot in our province. It's an incredible resource for trip planning, so I encourage your listeners to go have a look. Thanks very much for doing this, Marsha Walden. We appreciate that you're taking some time on a Sunday morning to refresh our memories about how exactly a fantastic place it is in which we all live. We appreciate it very much. Thank you, Sterling. Uh, we've got a, a sporty moment on the program today. Rob Williams is the sports editor at the Daily Hive in Vancouver. Rob, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sterling. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. Haven't talked to you on the radio for quite some time. And last time we did, my gosh, there was so much sports on TV, we didn't even have time to get through it all. Now, it's completely the exact opposite this morning. So last night, I decided, okay, let's let's put together a list for Rob, because he's a sharp guy, and i got to be ready for him. So let's find out what's on TV. I grab the thing, and I find out there's baseball in South Korea and Taiwan, which is being covered here in North America. Soccer started yesterday in Germany to empty stadiums. Apparently, Rob, there's a charity golf skins game with Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson and a couple of football players. That's on today? Uh, yeah, not with Tiger Woods, but uh, um, Rory McIlroy, oh, okay. uh, Dustin Johnson, Ricky Fowler. So some pretty so big some, names, but yeah. Some actual golfers. For, for charity. Oh, okay. Exactly. Yeah, because yeah, the other one was with Woods and Mickelson and a couple of football players, Peyton Manning and Tom Brady, and that was strictly for TV, of course. But at least with the four golfers, you, you got four guys who are quite capable of providing an entertaining round. Um, so that's today. Uh, last night, uh, just because I, I'm a sports fan, Rob, and there was nothing on, I tried to watch one of those uh, UFC, uh, you know, in the octagon things. And, yeah. and it was the undercard for some big fight, I guess. And it's just not my cup of tea. A couple of really small guys just beat the living tar out of each other and it was quite literally a bloody mess it was awful to watch and but you know i guess for some it's a spectator sport we're a little starved for spectator sports mr williams what can you tell us about what's coming back beyond that short list i've identified indeed and and just as an aside i, I mean i love all sports I, I must say for for watch for watching sports ufc i'm, I'm not into it uh, go, I, I like to play golf, but I don't like to watch golf. I hear you. And uh, at NASCAR has also returned, and I have no interest in NASCAR. So I was all over the German Bundesliga uh, yesterday, and I'll be watching Alfonso Davies, uh, who's playing with, uh, I guess, at 9 o'clock this morning uh, for Bayern Munich. So that's something to watch uh, that, That's today. the young former Vancouver Whitecap, isn't it? Exactly, and he's uh, really playing well in Germany by all uh, by all accounts. So it would be great to see him in action. Uh, of course, every every sport with no no crowds, uh, and there's you know, for for many of the big leagues in North America, it, it's it's a lot of rumors and and talk, and um, but it does sound like they're going to try to get things going uh, this summer for uh, for Major League Baseball, for the National Hockey League, and for the NBA. So. 
Uh, and then, of course, the NFL doesn't return until the fall, and they've already um, they've released their schedule as if they're going to be playing um, in their own home stadiums as normal. That's right, they have, and they're being very optimistic. And fortunately for the sports radio stations, and I'm not a big fan of those because I find them just a little too geeky. But and I'm a sports fan, but fortunately for them, they've had precious little to talk about. But at least the NFL held a draft. They've released a schedule. They've had a few trades and, and at least something to talk about. Uh, by the way, we did a thing, a poll here, a chat with a former BC Lions president a week or two ago, Rob, about this pitch by the CFL to the government of Canada for a bailout of anywhere from 30 to $150 million. And we've sort of had a running tally going on from our listeners ever since because the reaction wasn't exactly screamingly positive. And to this moment, we're running at about three to one. 75% saying no, and 25% saying, oh, give them a break. Come on, it's Canadian football. Uh, is, does that sentiment uh, echo with you based on the research you're doing in terms of Canadian football? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, the CFL is an interesting one because they've essentially said that, that they it's not viable for them to play in, in front of um, empty stadiums. At least that that's what they were saying um, to begin with, sure. Uh, the CFL is obviously is you know different from from many of the other big leagues. Like it's not a huge money making engine, uh, so for them this will hurt more. Uh, but at the same time, these are these teams are not owned by like you know average Joes. Like sure. these are <laughs> like multi multi millionaires billionaires that own these teams. So uh, it is a bit difficult to to just give money to um, to rich owners mm-hmm. that that operate um, you know a, a sport a non essential service. So I I can see both sides of it, but at the same time, it would be a real shame if if the CFL ceased to exist. If, if that's uh, and, and I guess that's it depends on what you believe. Do you believe that that they will really go out of business? Um, if they don't get any government help, then, you know, I can see some, you know, an aspect of, you know, uh, based on, you know, tradition, culture, Canadian culture, that aspect of the CFL. I sure. think that, that there's something to be said for that. Interesting stuff. So we've covered off football here, Rob. Let's let's go to base. Oh, and by the way, you were talking about watching German hockey and, or German soccer and uh, the young white cap who's going to be starting on TV in, in about uh, 40 minutes uh, playing for Bayern Munich. Uh, the Dortmund team uh, does like uh, a lot of hockey teams do at the end of every game. They gather at the center of the field and they applaud the fans in the stands before they walk, as like hockey players do. They raise their sticks and all that. So the Dortmund guys yesterday at the end of their game did the going to the center of the field and thanking all the fans in the stands. Of course, it wasn't anybody in the house, but it was such a routine. And so many were watching on TV. They did it anyway. That cracked a lot of people up. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if they need to like maybe set some cameras up like for the players can look right at the cameras and and uh, do that or something. I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, I think I think there was a security guard in the stand. That was about it. Well, uh, and of course, so we've an interesting scene. And we've seen from from those Asian baseball leagues in South Korea now in Taiwan. They they're at the point now where they will allow 1,000 fans into these uh, Taiwanese baseball pro league games. So that's a lot of distancing and all the rest of it in in stadiums that clearly accommodate a lot more. In South Korea, there are still no fans, but they have cut out cardboard cutouts <laughs> people in, in empty. Chairs. 
chairs. And that's kind of cute, too. So, I mean, some of the some of the leagues are adapting with a sense of humor. And I think that's very helpful, especially in terms of bridging the gap between all those fans anxious to have you back and all those players who are really still quite worried, Rob, about their personal safety in returning to whatever their sport might be. Yeah, I just I do think these leagues will need to get creative uh, to kind of take take advantage of the fact that uh, it's a different situation. Uh, they will have you know a, a, a lot of. I think they should they should they should try a lot of things out and and like you say, have fun with it. Um, think of ways to to add to to the product that that are not possible when there's when there's a crowd present mm-hmm. and. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think I think you're probably going to see a lot of leagues add a lot of advertisement. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, oh, in, yeah. in those big empty in, big empty seats. I remember during the um, uh, Australian Rules Football League played one uh, played one week before they shut down operations and, uh, with an with an empty stadium, and that's what they did. And so they, all these seats were filled with uh, with advertise big advertisement. So. I think that's something else to look out for. Yeah, I think so, too. But you are you're, you're quite legitimately across the board in sports. You're seeing a lot of athletes, of course, anxious to get back to that thing that they get ridiculously well paid for something they've been doing since they were four. And there are a lot of others going, you know, my wife's about to have our first child here. And, you know, there's, you know, I'm young, healthy and strong and I've got a future and I'm, I'm a little antsy about this. There's a lot of it's a lot of pulling in a lot of directions on this, isn't there? Yeah, Canucks captain Bo Horvat is, uh, is uh, expecting, uh, along with his, him and his wife, are expecting their first child this summer. So that that would be interesting um, uh, for them. Uh, yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I think it depends on on the player. Of course, everyone has a uh, a different level of anxiety uh, about this. Um, I I think that what should give people comfort and, and athletes comfort is the level of uh, the level that, that these leagues seem to be going to taking precautions, the amount of testing that they're going to be doing sure. for, for every player, um, even watching the, the, the Bundesliga and, and like, you know, players are, are distancing and outside and wearing masks, yeah. which seems like really going above and beyond. And we look at the Vancouver Whitecaps return to training um, and, and the degrees that they've gone to ensure safety. I mean, they're going well above and beyond what any, you know, it, it's it's far more dangerous to go to Costco this weekend than it is to go to, to, to train at the Whitecaps facility. Talking a little Sunday morning sports here with Rob Williams, the sports editor at the Daily Hive here in Vancouver. And Rob, you've written recently about uh, baseball owners and their pitch to their players and their idea for a season. And we'll get to that in a second. But of course, it is Vancouver. And our premier, Mr. Horgan, made a big pitch, a passionate pitch indeed, he called it, to Gary Bettman, the uh, commissioner of hockey, to uh, see Vancouver be a hub city for uh, a series of NHL games should they revive their season in some fashion. We should also point out for the record that Edmonton is lobbying at least as vigorously as Vancouver to be that hub city. So two questions here for you, Rob. How likely is there to be hockey in the first place at all? And I guess the second half would be how likely would be we be here in Vancouver to maybe be one of those host hub cities? Yeah, I mean, I've I, I, have been going back and forth on whether 
was thinking that this is going to happen or not in the last few weeks. And at, at this moment now, I, I have to say, I think it's going to happen. Uh, NHL Commissioner Gary Bettman has said recently that he's not even thinking about uh, cancelling the season at this point. So uh, I do think it's going to happen. It, it sounds like the, the most talked about um, scenario right now talk is, is this hub city using four cities um, to host, host the remaining games. Uh, it sounds like they're strongly considering going to a 2014 playoff, uh, and which uh, to me, it seemed really unrealistic at first, but I can see the benefits for it right now. It's a bit of an interesting situation because teams only have about 10 games remaining. So to, to invite the, the last place teams to come back just for 10 games and go to all of that trouble um, does seem like a bit of a waste of time for them. So maybe it just makes sense to just dive right into the Stanley Cup playoff and, and just do it with an expanded format. And the, the interesting thing about that is that that will invite uh, the Chicago Blackhawks into the mix and probably weren't going to make it. They were six points behind the playoff spot right. at the time the, the NHL paused. And the Montreal Canadiens would be the, the biggest benefactor to that. They were 10 points back. So they... They were pretty well, um, pretty much done. Weren't designed they? to be to, to be out of the playoffs. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the idea would be to play a, a a limited number of so-called regular season games before jumping into a, an abbreviated p- uh, playoff format. What about Vancouver's chances as the, the venue for all of this versus Edmonton and that new whiz bang sports complex they've got at the Ice <laughs> Center downtown? Because they've got the hotel. The difference between Edmonton and Vancouver, logistically, Rob is that they're, they, they have a hotel complex attached to the new Rogers Place uh, rink uh, so that you, as a player, would never have to go outdoors to go from your room to the dressing room and then the game. Exactly. I mean, I think it depends on uh, a couple of things. It depends on what is the plan. Is it, is it in fact, the, this hub city plan where they're going to be hosting you know, having a host from each division, then it would pit Vancouver versus Edmonton. There's, you know, there's nothing to say that they could just have, they could give it to Edmonton and Vancouver. True. Right? Yep, yep. So I think that, I think that's a possibility. It also depends on, you know, how much of, how much are we expecting these players to literally live in, you know, live inside of a bubble. Uh, like you say, the, the hotel, it, it, there's a five-star hotel attached to the, to the arena yeah. in, in Edmonton. There's all, I think a, a, another big factor is the, the practice rink that they have that's attached yes. to the arena. So you can keep teams, you know, in their own dressing room. You don't have to move their equipment all over the, all over the town. Sure. So I think that that would be helpful. Um, but if we're talking about Vancouver, I mean, they could play more than, than a quarter of the league in Vancouver. If you're willing to go and play at that UBC could host games and you could host games at the Langley event center sure. and Abbotsford mm-hmm. the Coliseum. So there's, I think both both sides have their advantages, but um, you know if you're playing games in, in Edmonton, like are you are you expecting players to not even leave the hotel? Like are they literally not going outside? If you're allowing players to to go walk and get some fresh air, then I think it, the fact that the hotel is attached is probably not that big of right. a, a deal. I mean, there's a 
there's a hotel a block away from from Rogers Arena that oh, can sure. do just fine. And and if we're allowing them to go walk on the seawall and and do those kinds of things, then I then I don't think it it matters particularly much. Okay, so you're you're, you're still optimistic though. There will be some form of NHL activity uh, before the start of next season. I I, I okay. am yeah. Okay. I, I think that if you listen to all all the um, what all the insiders are saying right now, and you hear what what Gary Bettman seems to think, uh, I think it's possible to do it. And, and even even um, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, I mean, she said herself that she thinks it can be done safely. Yep. Um, so I think if if they take all the necessary precautions and they're testing everyone and they're and they're um, really doing their best to keep players safe and and um, limit their contacts uh, with you know with the outside world as much as they can. I, I think it, I think that it's definitely worth a shot, and I, and I think that uh, they're going to give it a shot. Interesting stuff. Let's go back to baseball because uh, the other team that we have here is, of course, the Vancouver Canadians, now part of the Toronto Blue Jays organization, playing in the prettiest little park in all of baseball, Nat Bailey Stadium. Uh, we are likely to see some form of baseball, as in the Blue Jays, not likely in Toronto, probably down in Florida. If you're optimistic about the return to some degree of hockey, Rob Williams, how optimistic are you that baseball in some form is going to be available? sometime this summer yeah you know what at this moment it it sounds a little bit less likely i would say than the nhl just based on what we're hearing right now that it sounds like the owners and the players are having a trouble agreeing um on details in it and it's not to do with uh, with the coronavirus it's, it's about money it's everything it? to do with money right now exactly yep. so so owners owners and players Oh, we just lost him, uh, Julie. I think we just—I uh, think Rob Sell just. How many number oh, there of he games? Is. This... Yeah, sorry. Yeah, um, you just dropped off for a second, Rob. Sorry. Oh, okay. I'm back. <laughs> yeah, they they essentially agreed to a prorated salary depending on the number of games exactly. that they played. But this, but this was back, you know, in February, March before they they realized that that all of the games would be played without fans. So. There's going to be a lot of money lost here, so the owners want, want essentially want players to kind of uh, play for even less, and, and a lot of players are, are have got their backs up on that, and they they essentially want to tie tie their salaries to league revenues, which sure. is essentially like a salary cap, and players in the in Major League Baseball are not into that, so uh, they're going to have to get past that. Um, it, so we'll see. I mean, but it does sound like there's there's going to be a little bit more trouble getting back for baseball. So, of course, if there's no Blue Jays baseball, there will be no Blue Jays minor league baseball, and the Vancouver Canadians will be sitting out the season as well, right? Yeah, it doesn't. To, to be honest, it doesn't look like there's going to be um, Vancouver Canadians baseball at all, um, whether the majors play play um, or not. Uh, just judging by what their owner said uh, recently, um, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't look like uh, the minor leagues. It, it's it's tougher for minor league baseball because they don't have that that television contract. Sure. There's less there's less to be coming back for. So it's going to be, you know, it's, it's, I guess there'll be local radio. It would be the only um, benefactor to to that. So so yeah, they, they don't count on on Canadian baseball uh, returning this season. Thirty seconds. The most disappointing news I've heard all week is that the NFL, if and when they run their season with no fans in the stands, are going to have fake fan noises anyway. That drives <laughs> me nuts. How about you? <laughs> 
Yeah, can, can we not get some robots like Taiwan or something fun like cardboard cutouts, uh, something like that? But they're gonna have to do something. They're gonna have to do something. Um, I, I'm really hopeful that they can do what Taiwan is now done and have some fans in the stands. Sure. Or maybe you can start with just with team employees or something like that, just to make a bit of noise and get some people, uh, you know, socially distanced out into the crowd. Rob Williams, great to have you back on the show. It's been a long time. We'll have to do this on, on a more regular basis. And here's hoping by the next time you and I talk, maybe in a few weeks, there'll be actual real sports and results and things to talk about. That would be kind of kind of nifty, wouldn't it? I sure hope so. Thanks for this this morning. Good to have you on. On the line is Surrey City, City Councilor Linda Annas here to talk to us about uh, what happened at Vancouver City Hall and the slashing of the police budget and how that might look were it to have happened in Surrey to its brand new Surrey Police Department. Councilor Annas, Linda, welcome back me again it's good to have you with us so let's just quickly review though what happened in vancouver because you see this as a wake-up call for the proposal of the surrey police department so the police budget was reduced uh to the consternation of the police chief to say nothing of his subordinates uh to the tune of uh to the amount that will according to chief adam palmer equal Uh, In terms of boots on the ground, Linda, 80 officers. Now, we already know that if the RCMP does transition out of Surrey and Surrey has its own police department, the ranks will be approximately 80 officers lighter than are currently there under the RCMP. So were that budget cut to happen to a Surrey police department already with reduced manpower, what would it look like? It would be absolutely problematic. Uh, first of all, I'd like to point out that this transition is going to cost us in excess of $129 million, which quite frankly to me seems a waste of taxpayers' money, particularly our city, just like Vancouver and the rest of the cities uh, throughout uh, the world. We are operating uh, at a loss right now. We're losing money, yet we're proceeding with this transition, which just doesn't make sense to me. So uh, as a budgetary item, uh, is the, for example, you you quoted a $129 million figure uh, as the transition budget. What does that include, Linda? Does that include the first year's operating expenses for the new force, or is that just a transition phase funding? That's just a transition funding. So uh, right now we get a 10% uh, uh, rebate on our policing uh, from Ottawa, that goes away. IT, the cost of training officers, new uniforms, uh, a whole, whole myriad of things. So uh, that doesn't take into account the actual operating cost of the Surrey Police Department, which I might add is roughly 10% more uh, budgeted uh, once we get to the operation stage to uh, run a police force in Surrey versus the RCMP. So that's going to cost us 10% more at least, and I would question the 10% starting out of the gate after we spend $129 million. So uh, now in terms of manpower, in terms of actual members in uniform, what can you tell us about the current uh, numbers of RCMP members, Councillor, versus what uh, the mayor and the new police force would look like just in terms of boots on the ground? Sure. Uh, just to put it into perspective, currently the RCMP are operating with 843 members. 
serving uh, the residents of Surrey. And to do just a comparison with Vancouver, Vancouver has over 1,400. But when you look at the population of Surrey, we're 85% of the population of Vancouver. Right. And our geographic is as big as Vancouver, Burnaby, and Richmond combined. So clearly right now we don't have enough police officers. And yet with the new proposed Surrey Police Department, we will have significantly fewer members. So if we have to take a cut, that is hugely problematic for the residents of Surrey. So if uh, if, if you say there's, what, 840-some members right now uh, in the current RCMP ranks, reduce that by the same number of officers that Chief Palmer says will uh, this budget uh, readjustment, to be kind, uh, is going to cost 80 cops. So if you were to subtract that, uh, as, uh, extrapolating the same budget reduction on, on a Surrey police force, that would take you down into the 700s in the largest geographical municipality in the country. Yes? Absolutely. And that would give us roughly 50 percent uh, of the, our police force size of Vancouver. And so you can see that that's problematic. What we would be much Martyr to be doing is taking some of the transition funds and giving the RCMP the number of members that they that they need to uh, be able to uh, serve Surrey. So you've talked about losing money. I'm, I'm going to change gears on you for just a little second, but it'll all come back in a minute. You're talking about losing money uh, as a municipality, as as the city of Surrey, Councillor Annis. Is that because uh, a lot of your tax-paying business licensees are simply either closed or not uh, flush enough with cash to pay their taxes on time or at all? Is that where your money loss is coming from? The money loss is coming from a whole variety of of means that that would be one certainly all of our recreation facilities are all closed so we're not getting any revenue there and we've also unfortunately had to lay off over 2,000 staff in Surrey so really we should be taking our transition money putting that into programs that will help the residents and businesses get back on their feet financially so, Linda, you've been on this this thing for a while. You and I have had a, a few conversations about it uh, over the last several months. Uh, and, and, you know, this was a, a fairly uh, democratically uh, reached at decision by the mayor and his supporters on city council. Uh, it, it was a fairly rushed process, I think the observers could easily say. But what sort of appetite, now that it's essentially over and done with, there's a $129 million price tag attached to it okay so that funds uh, those funds are allocated let's move on here or or is there enough of an appetite remaining in surrey linda that this could be reconsidered i think this needs to be reconsidered there's been no transparency in the process the residents of surrey had no idea what this was going to cost or what the policing model was going to look like. And quite frankly, I don't think um, it's still really clear to them what they're getting if indeed we transfer over to the Surrey Police Department. There was a petition done in Surrey and more than 42,000 signatures were collected. That's more votes than any of the councillors that are remaining on the Safe Surrey Coalition got when they were elected. So clearly, this needs to go towards a referendum, but right now we shouldn't be doing anything. We should be taking a pause and supporting our residents and supporting our businesses 
and getting our city back up on its feet again. Yeah, now a referendum, of course, is not free. Uh, it wouldn't cost $129 million, I suspect, but it does involve a certain amount of cost and organization. Do you feel it's appropriate? Maybe not right now, because we have a health uh, crisis on our hands. But at some point, uh, Dr. Henry is going to say phase three, and uh, that's going to allow us a little more breathing space and room and a, a little more chance to, to explore, even on a limited basis. Uh, is is this all uh, could this all happen over the summer well i can't really speak to when this could be done but i think our first priority has to be getting our residents and businesses back up on their sure. feet financially and and getting our economy going again and looking for innovative projects and uh, plans that we can do to make surrey thrive again and we shouldn't be spending money on something like this right now and i ultimately think um, if this issue keeps percolating as it is that we should have a referendum when it's safe to do it. And do you think that uh, that, that you would find a majority of citizens, in a, just from the point of view of finally putting the thing to rest one way or another, okay, let's just do it, let's have a vote, yes or no, and get it over with. Is there that appetite, do you think? Absolutely there is. Uh, I don't talk to anyone uh, other than the mayor and his team that says, yes, let's go ahead and let's um, Let's go on with this uh, Surrey Police Department. I'm hearing loud and clear 42,000 people have signed this petition. In fact, I should say in excess of 42,000 people. Now that um, uh, they aren't able to be out and signing petitions, I'm seeing lawn signs throughout Surrey saying, you know, keep the RCMP. Clearly, this is a very hot topic in Surrey, and it's one that the residents need to be listened to and heard, and we need to be responding to what the residents want, not to anybody's special interest. I suppose in terms of getting that Surrey economy back up and rolling again, step one would be uh, getting those uh, 2,000 laid-off employees back to City Hall and back on the job, right? Absolutely, and getting our restaurants and small businesses opening. We need to be supporting our businesses here. Uh, Virtually um, all of the businesses are closed right now, and those that are open are reporting that the revenues have dropped to such a 75%. You can't operate in that fashion for long, and we need to be doing things to help them get back on their feet and getting restaurants open. Councillor Linda Annis, thanks very much for this. Good to have you back on the show. Doubtless we will talk again, perhaps even uh, as a referendum approaches. Who knows? We appreciate your time this morning. My pleasure. And a couple of Sundays ago, we talked, uh, spent this half hour with global investigative news reporter Sam Cooper, who joined us from Ottawa, and talked about something called the United Front. Uh, this is a, an arm of the Communist Party of China, and it is a huge bureaucracy that uh, extends its tentacles into many, many aspects of Canadian society. We're going to continue that conversation today from a slightly different perspective. We're going to speak to Anastasia Lin. Now, Anastasia is a former Miss World Canada back in 2015. She is a graduate of the University of Toronto. She is also the Canada-China Policy Ambassador for Canada's Macdonald Laurier Institute and gave a speech recently at Oxford University in England uh, in which uh, the question was posed, does China consider itself to be in a cold war with the West? Anastasia Lin joins us from New York. Good morning and thanks for being with us. Good morning. It's a pleasure to have you with us, Anastasia. So, short or long answer, your, your pick here. I want you to answer the question that you, you took on in Oxford a few weeks ago. Does the People's Republic of China consider itself to be in a Cold War with us in the West? 
Well, I think to be more precise is the Chinese Communist Party that had been engaging in a cold war with the West for decades now. Okay, can you be a little more specific, especially with respect to recent activities? Again, referencing Sam Cooper's excellent work that we were uh, that we featured on the show just a couple of short weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Communist Party, the regime, and Chinese people are totally two different things. And when we mix the two together, sometimes our visions are blurred. It's the Communist Party that had been engaging in these um, infiltration on overseas Chinese community. People may be of Chinese origin, but they are citizens of different countries in the West. Sure. Now, when the Communist Party, um, they want overseas Chinese to kowtow to the Beijing policy, what they do is that they infiltrate these organizations, or in some cases establish a lot of student organization, professional organization, and brand them as the Canadian Chinese Association of such and such. Right. And then they would have these so-called Chinese leaders who are actually voluntary um, in most cases. Some, like I would not know because I heard some people say that some are getting paid. There's financial interest there. But um, a lot of them get trained in China in these overseas Chinese conferences. And these conferences are, um, it's on their website. It's so clear. They say they train these overseas Chinese leaders to tell the China story well to parry the criticism of um, toward Chinese Communist Party from outside. Mm-hmm. And then when they come back, it's almost like a seed that's planted all over the world. Whenever they need to be mobilized, they're given tasks. So let's talk a little bit about you, because you grew up in China. You didn't move to Canada until you were a 13-year-old kid. So you went to quite a number of years in the uh, the education system in China, in which a fair amount of indoctrination, pretty negative stuff towards the West takes place. Tell us about your experiences as, as an elementary school student. Mm. In China, since we're very young, even in kindergarten, we're starting to sing songs that had uh, lyrics about how the Communist Party is your uh, greatest leader, and then you they're always glorious righteous, and then when you sing song, when you express yourself, you got to show your, fin- uh, uh, your love for the Chinese Communist Party. And when it gets to an older age, like in elementary school, we're uh, introduced to the idea of the foreign hostile forces. That is the invisible black hand of the Western enemy that's constantly trying to undermine Chinese government and our country and trying to humiliate us. Now, uh, the reason for that is that, uh, long story short, Communist Party promised the Chinese people to be liberated and free and there's going to be a utopia. But of course, in practice, that's never going to be true. It's always the opposite that happens. And when Chinese people are being faced with chaos and and poverty, they ask the leader, well, where's the thing that you deliver? And the Chinese communist leader had to say, there's always an enemy internally or in the West that's trying to undermine us. Therefore, we cannot deliver that utopia. This is basically the essence of why this invisible enemy must exist, is to legitimize the rule of Chinese Communist Party to the Chinese people. And, and one, one would have to think, by way of just what you've said, Anastasia, the example of the dissidents in Hong Kong and the ongoing degree of intense protest from those brave young people would be seen by Beijing as evidence for the rest of the population that it not only is this coming from the West, it's infiltrated, they're right here on our doorstep. Mm-hmm. 
Not only that, uh, Communist Party had always said that the Beijing, I mean, uh, U.S. and the West is always behind these pro-democracy movements, even inside China. Any expression of domestic discontent, human rights lawyers, those courageous Chinese human rights lawyers, brave Chinese citizens, even people of Han origin, of Tibetan origin, Uyghurs, Christians, Falun Gong practitioners, all these groups are attributed to the black hand of over um, uh, anti-hostile forces, um, and even the Taiwanese government is supposedly, according to Chinese government, sponsored by the U.S. and the West. Mm-hmm. So, how, as a, as a product, to to the extent that you went through many years of it as a little kid before your parents moved you to Canada, how much? of this indoctrination process is basically swallowed hook, line, and sinker by the population in China. In my own case, I had never had an alternative. That was the education I was brought up with. And it creates a self-filtering system. Even when you land in Vancouver after get off the plane, it's not like you breathe the air of freedom and all of a sudden you're accustomed to the Western tradition of freedom and democracy. No. It takes a very long process. First, when you see dissidents or protesters on the street about Chinese Communist Party, then you will immediately think, no, that's Mm anti-China. They are attacking China. They are attacking my identity. They're attacking me. And then gradually then you realize, oh, actually, they're criticizing a regime. And that process comes, like, usually it takes a few years, and it takes the individual to be willing to open to the society that he is living in. In some cases, some Chinese immigrants have not even engaged with the West on uh, a level of value and thinking, mostly mostly like surviving um, monetary exchange. So the idea of democracy, the process, the institution are not very familiar to them. Aha. Uh-huh. Interesting. Anastasia, please stand by, if you will. I need to take a quick station break. Our guest joining us from New York is uh, McDonald Laurier, Canada-China Policy Ambassador Anastasia Lin, with a very interesting perspective on this infiltration and very vigorous, energetic activity, negative it all, towards the West from inside our own country. Let's zoom in, if we can, Anastasia, for a few minutes on Canada. And and one of the things you address in your speech, which was to the student union at Oxford University, so naturally, you spent a few moments talking about activities uh, by the official party or its instruments on Canadian, on Western campuses. Let's let's zoom in on Canadian campuses and see what sort of things they're doing. A lot of funding for special projects, R&D and, and other things. A lot of money floating into Canadian universities from China. Mm-hmm. Also, the and freedom of speech on campuses. Let's first talk about Confucius Institute, which is the best example okay, of sure. that. Of indoctrination. So Confucius Institute posed itself as a language and cultural program that is very neutral. It just teaches Chinese language, spread Chinese culture. But what it actually is, is an arm of the Chinese propaganda department. It even won a soft power award inside China for its uh, being very forcefully and effectively um, helping the propaganda department. So it poses as Chinese and language program, but the textbook is basically the textbook that Chinese children use. And 
you know, the songs in there would be the great leader Mao leads us to glory. Mm. The sun rises on um, Tiananmen, uh, Tiananmen Square, and there is a picture of Mao there, and he's our glorious leader. It's things like that that are being taught to Canadian children or Canadian students here. There were many protests by different Chinese community groups um, that are trying to stop this Confucius Institute from going into different uh, universities and in our communities, the Confucius classroom. It's in the name of Confucius. They're propagating Chinese communist propaganda. Mm-hmm. So, And also it's very harmful for the Chinese dissidents here because in it, it um, expresses uh, first contempt toward different uh, minority race that are neighboring China, for example, Tibet or Uyghur or Taiwan issue or uh, Hong Kong issue. It has a very clear political stance on these issues. And it was uh, discovered later on that the Confucius Institute teachers opposed to say exactly what the Communist Party's um, talking point is when being asked of these questions and teach these things to, Chinese, uh, to students who want to learn Chinese. And there are other cases that Confucius Institute interfere of the freedom of speech on campuses. If there is a speaker that is critical of Chinese regime that are being invited onto campuses, or there is a film or documentary that are being shown on campus that's critical of the regime, then Confucius Institute will interfere and influence the campus to cancel these events. Right. This happened to me in Australia. And also my speech had uh, received a lot of protests in Durham University. Um, it's the same kind of student debate in Durham Union. But Durham University Student Union, um, they recorded the call from the Chinese embassy and collected evidence of the um, Chinese um, association, the communist-controlled uh, division in their university. A lot of those evidence, and they publicized it on um, tabloid and uh, BuzzFeed and all those websites. So the event was allowed to go on. But how many other cases when the event was not allowed to go on and Westerners have kowtowed to the pressure from China? Exactly. And I suppose, uh, you know, it, it, one wonders, and, and opinion polls, there's an abundance of opinion polls out in just the last couple of days, Anastasia, across Canada, indicating from uh, legitimate outfits like Angus Reid and other major polling companies that uh, the the sympathy or uh, sympathetic feelings towards China across Canada are at an all-time low. Some 85% of Canadians have negative feelings towards China, possibly as a result of COVID-19 and the way that uh, the information about its outbreak was suppressed. But I'm I'm curious uh, about a couple of things because we need to talk about this. Donald Trump has labeled this the China virus, thereby making it, giving permission to a lot of sort of borderline racists to to just have a field day uh, with anti-Asian sentiment, anti-Chinese sentiment. There is a lot of validity in criticizing the Chinese government for suppressing information that could have really reduced and saved an awful lot of lives globally uh, as a result of not telling us about the pandemic. But in your mind, where does where, where does the criticism legitimate and where does it go south? Well, I think the virus should be called the CCP virus, which is the Chinese Communist Party virus. If we had listened to those communist critics, like 
critics of the Chinese Communist Party that are here in the West that have been always watching what the Communist Party is doing to its own citizens, then we will see how many Chinese citizens, courageous doctors and nurses at the beginning of the pandemic, were trying to tell the world, trying to tell the rest of the Chinese people that Wuhan had this plague that was going on. Yeah. If we had listened, if we had listened to these critics, we, if we had listened to Chinese people, we wouldn't end up in where we are right now. But it was the regime that suppressed all these voices, arrested eight doctors for spreading this news and called them uh, undermining Chinese uh, stable society, something like that. And, and they were eventually released. One of the doctors died, Li Wenliang. So we need to make a clear distinction that Chinese people are different from Chinese Communist Party. Right. And if anything, the Communist Party had been the biggest oppressor of Chinese people in the last seven decades. And by speaking up toward the Chinese Communist Party's regime, we are helping these courageous Chinese people to confront this totalitarian. You know, with this high degree of, of negative sentiment towards uh, China in Canada, Anastasia, uh, it's it's interesting. One of the newspapers uh, was looking at this and, and how the Canadian government has been reacting to all of this. And it's, its analysis boiled down to it's tough to stand up to China when you're bowing all the time. Now the Chinese government is mad at Jason Kenney, the premier of next door in Alberta, who's demanding some kind of reckoning, as is Australia. Nobody in Ottawa appears to have any backbone when it comes to standing up to China. Why is that, do you think? That is a huge problem. And that has been going to be taken by Beijing as a message. Because communist regime, they respect, no, they don't respect anything. They fear strength. And that's the only language they understand. When Western countries, you don't have to get engaged in a war to show your strength. Sure. You only have to be vocal and dare to stand by your own principle of freedom and democracy and exercise what you think the communist regime is doing wrong. By speaking up, they will get the message that you won't let them bully you all the way. And they will respect that. But if you don't, they'll push you all the way to the wall. They see that you're willing to compromise, and they will just push their agenda all the way. And so, and that's the same thing goes with individuals, journalists, um, journalists, institutions, and also um, individual dissidents mm. that are outside, like me. When the, the Communist Party first threatened my father when I won Miss War Canada here, because I spoke about the human rights issue, my father sent me a message telling me that the National Security Agency had approached him and told me, like, if I don't shut up, then my family will be persecuted, like in the Cultural Revolution. Yeah. At the beginning, I was not going to talk. I was just going to let it go, hoping that everything will be okay. But then when my Western journalist friends told me, if you exercise your voice right now, they, you will have leverage. They will know that you're not going to back down. It's most likely they won't dare to push it further because you will have the international media support. And the more exposure you get, ironically, you will add more protective value for your family. Well, we are grateful for your time this morning, Anastasia. We, we, we appreciate your, your, your backbone, your determination, and your desire to get out the truth. We appreciate your time this morning, and let's do this again uh, in a couple of weeks as, as this goes forward. We're far from done, but unfortunately, I'm out of time right now. Thank you for yours. We'll talk again. Thank you.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.